0: Karen, I understand how you feel. I have bifocals, and I'm always doing this, trying to uh, read, so I understand completely. What's the most awkward dinner gathering you've ever attended? I'm sure things are coming to your mind, maybe things you'd like to forget. When I was in college, one summer I uh, spent that summer in Taiwan, and uh, went to a camp, and I was one of the only uh, uh, Americans there and so we had this lavish dinner and they declared me the guest of honor. And that was pretty cool, it was fun until they told me that we were having fish and they told me that the guest of honor at this meal gets to eat the fish eye. So it took me a little while getting my courage up but I ate it. It's a weird feeling being able to see around in your stomach. (laughs) I know, it was bad, Sorry. You know, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable to be at a meal when you don't know the customs and the manners that everybody else knows. You know, you, you're at this, you're at you a fancy dinner and you're looking around wondering which fork you use and when do you do this and what is that for? Um, it's awkward, especially when everyone else knows and understands. But it's even more awkward when you don't really believe you're wanted or welcomed at the table. 1967 Oscar-winning movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starred Spencer Tracy and Katharine Hepburn uh, as the parents of a daughter who brought home her fiancé one weekend. And this young doctor is an ideal choice for the daughter. He's highly and internationally respected in the medical field. He's impeccably mannered, handsome, well-dressed, comes from a very respectable family. He's perfect. But when they sit around the table for dinner, there's a lot of awkward tension because this fiance, played by Sidney Poitier, is black. And it's a whole drama, comedic drama, of some of the, the racial tensions and stereotypes in American culture in the 60s. In 2005, Bernie Mac and Aston Kutcher starred in a remake of that movie, but with a twist. In this adaptation, titled Guess Who?, the family is black and the fiancée is white. But it doesn't lessen the awkwardness of their meals and really the entire events. And yet, as awkward as those settings were, they are minuscule compared to a lot of the settings in first century Jerusalem and Judaism. It's difficult to exaggerate the significance of table fellowship in first century culture. It's more than just an opportunity to come together and to consume food or to gain nourishment. A meal together symbolizes friendship and and relationship and intimacy and and unity of thoughts and heart. And, And it's a connection of people with the same social values and boundaries and status. Meals are symbolic of a person's value and worth. Only important people eat with important people. And you know you've arrived when you're invited. You know that you are worth very little if you're not invited. And what's most amazing and troubling about all this is that when you read the New Testament, you get the feeling that in that culture, no one is more concerned and no one more expert at using meals to promote and to maintain social boundaries than the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And this entire 14th chapter of Luke's gospel is is Jesus' attempt to address that issue. The chapter opens with Jesus paying attention to a man who is an outcast because he has a disease. What does Jesus do for this man who isn't welcome at the table? Jesus stops everything and he heals him. And then Jesus tells these social elitists that when they go to a banquet and they walk in, take the lowest seat available, not the best seat. And I'm sure they're all shaking their heads. And then he says, in addition to that, when you throw a big party, don't invite everyone you're expected to invite. You know, the people who look like you, the people who dress like you, people who have the same social standing as you. The people whose presence adds credibility and significance to your party and to you. Don't invite them. Surround your table with people who are not usually welcomed people who are avoided by your circle of friends people that the culture considers cursed by god and i suspect now they're really shaking their heads and if that isn't radical enough jesus pushes them even further from their physical tables in their homes to the heavenly table of god's kingdom jesus tells a parable about a wealthy man who throws a party for all the right people and they've accepted it's on their calendars it's all set when the word goes out that everything is ready, they've all got reasons for not coming. I just bought a field and I have to go inspect it. I just, I just bought some oxen and I need to go check them out. I just, I just got married and I can't come. It, when I read those, they, they sound a little bit like the refusals that guys sometimes hear from women when they ask them out for a date. And I'd love to go out with you, but I've got to wash my hair. The date sounds great, but I've got to work on that term paper that's due next semester. I'd love to go out with you, but tonight I'm, I'm, I'm cleaning and, and uh, work, washing my toothbrush. I can't do it, sorry. Now, not that I ever encountered any of those, but people told me about it. <laughs> invited guests don't want to engage in fellowship with the host. And as you can imagine, the host is angry. He's going to all this trouble to prepare this elaborate banquet. And the honored guests don't want to come. They don't want what he's offering. Actually, what they really are doing is rejecting the host. Remember, it's really not about the food. It's about the host. And they're saying to him, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're not important to me. I'm not wasting my time with you. And so the host says, fine. If you don't want relationship with me, then I'm going to find people who do. Every parable that Jesus tells has an unexpected turning point, and here it is. When the host's invitation is rejected by the expected guests, he invites others. But the real surprise is that he invites people who wouldn't normally be invited people who are needy, people who are considered unimportant in society, people who typically would never be invited to these kinds of events. It's really scandalous. A proper, important host would rather throw out the food than invite these people. And yet, this is exactly what the host does. And the people he invites come with great joy. And don't think that these, these needy people don't have anything to do. They have families. They have obligations. I suspect they have less free time than the rich and the powerful who have servants at their beck and call. They aren't coming because they have no excuses to make. They come because they're hungry. They have an opportunity to eat in the home of a prominent person, to experience the hospitality and the friendship of a prestigious host. And it doesn't matter that they're, asked, that they're not asked first. They're just overjoyed at being asked at all. And the traditional interpretation of this parable is that it's a picture of God's invitation to the Jews. And as a people, they reject God, and so now everyone else is is invited. And there's truth to that, but I think it's bigger than that. I think there's more going on here. Jesus is not merely attempting to speak to the way they approach meals and table etiquette. He's challenging the very core of how they view one another and how they value one another, how they understand and reflect the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to help people understand the, God's answer to the question, who will be repaid at the resurrection? Who will eat bread in the kingdom of God? Who is welcome at God's table? Now, I'm guessing that we read these kinds of stories and we're appalled at these religious folks who cling to social classes as a means of determining value and worth. And yet, let's be honest, we all wrestle with doing that. We assign value and worth to people all the time in our society. And it's all based on our perspectives. This may not be exactly the way they did it in the first century, but we do it nonetheless. How about your feelings concerning people who are wealthy or maybe people who are poor? People who are highly educated or people who have little education? People who are athletic or people who are not athletic? People who are highly popular, people who everyone shuns, people with the high GPA or how about people with a low GPA? How about your feelings toward Democrats, toward Republicans, toward people who are religiously liberal in your eyes or maybe people who are religiously conservative in your eyes? How about the value you place comparatively on children or on adults? We tend to to have stereotypes of of who God welcomes. And we're, we're almost always too narrow in who God welcomes. Whoever we consider on the fringe of society or life or people that we disagree with, we tend to say, well, I don't know if God wants them in the kingdom or not. But the picture that Jesus paints here in the parable and the teaching through this chapter... It's not just about this meal, it's a precursor about heaven. The book of Revelation, as Doug mentioned, speaks of the great wedding banquet when people come from every nation and tribe and every social class to receive the eternal friendship and relationship of God. And in one sense, this chapter is a warning to take down the barriers now because they're going to be taken down then. So what makes us think if we don't want to take down the barriers now? If we want to have tighter control in the kingdom than God does, what makes us think we're going to want that in heaven? I think Jesus is saying that his kingdom is more about being open than closed. More about inclusion than exclusion. More about grace than law. It doesn't imply that there, aren't, there isn't a door about, to God's kingdom, that, that there is no one who's excluded, that the law is no longer important, but it's probably less than most of us are willing to admit. We tend to put restrictions on God's kingdom that God doesn't put on his kingdom. And Jesus is declaring, anyone who wants to come to my table is welcome. Anyone who treats others as I do is welcome. This table is for everyone who desires to come. It's not about what you know or your position or or your about certain hot button issues. It's about your desire for relationship with Jesus Christ. It would seem inappropriate for us to spend all this time today talking about this biblical meal without talking about the meal that we celebrate as the Church of Jesus Christ. I think Jesus is talking about this meal too and saying, all are invited. You don't have to have your life all together in order to come to this table. You don't have to know everything about Christ. You don't have to understand all the right table etiquette. But as a human being who has been created in the image of God and loved by God, you're invited and you're welcome. If you think, though, that you have no need for God, if you think that that those barriers are are pretty important and it's important to keep some people out that you'd rather not have in, then this invitation becomes a serious warning. In this last verse, he says, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Because their goal is to try to keep people out, not to try and bring people in. And I know there are some people who have eliminated all the standards for this table. They imply that God really doesn't care, just come, doesn't matter. And others have used communion as a symbol for who's welcomed by Christ, who's not, and they've created a very, very small window. And they said, you have to be like us, you have to agree completely with us, or you're unwelcomed at this table. And we don't want to be naive. Decisions about this table are important, because it is a precursor to the great heavenly banquet. And I think that because we have a tendency to put strict limits on who's worthy to come to this table, we're putting those same limits on who we think is worthy to eat at that heavenly table. And yes, there are boundaries. But the boundaries are simply about relationship with Christ. Not all the peripheral things that we get so wrapped up in. They're not unimportant. They're just not central most important. and We are often far too concerned with stuff that's important to us than we are about a hunger for Christ and all that he's offering. And we forget that this table is all about grace. The grace of God that opens up a place for us so that we can come as undeserving as we are. So instead of being so concerned about saying the right words and looking right and doing the right things, Jesus seems to be asking one question. Are you hungry for what I'm offering? Is, this, is my banquet, is this invitation I've given you more important than the other things of life? Do you want a seat at my table? If so, come. There's a chair waiting for you. And you don't need credentials. You don't have to know the secret handshake or the secret code. You don't have to pass the security questions. You don't have to agree on all the peripherals. But do you want fellowship with Christ and with his people? Because the reality is Jesus is telling us there are no unimportant people in the kingdom of God. There are no unimportant people at this table. There is no place more level than at the table of Christ. If you have a need, if you have a hunger for Christ, his arms are open wide, his invitation is clear, come. Come as people in need of the grace and the mercy of Christ that we find in this table and in this kingdom. This table is not about us. It's about Christ. And it's about his grace for you and for me and for everyone who is hungry for him. So come. As the song says, come to the table of mercy, prepared with the wine and the bread. All who are hungry and thirsty, come and your souls will be fed. Won't you come at the Lord's invitation, receive from his nail-scarred hands, eat of the bread of salvation, drink of the blood of the lamb. Please pray with me. Lord, we come today to declare that you are creator and sovereign of the universe. That you love the world so much you gave your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. He suffered and died for the sin of the world. And you raised him from the dead that we too might have new life. He ascended to be with you in glory. And according to his promise, is with us always. We remember the night in which he offered himself up for us. And he took bread, gave thanks to you, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, and gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we remember all of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we ask you to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. A sacrifice that we offer in union with Christ's sacrifice for us as we surrender ourselves to you. We pray that you'll send the power of your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts That in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this cup, we may know the presence of the living Christ. Be one body in him, cleansed by his blood, faithfully serve him in this world, and look forward to his coming in final victory. In his name we pray. Amen.